Welcome to Native Yoga Toddcast. So happy you are here. My goal with this channel is to bring inspirational speakers to the mic in the field of yoga, massage, body work, and beyond. Follow us at Native Yoga and check us out at nativeyogacenter.com. All right, let's begin. Hello, hello, and welcome to Native Yoga Toddcast. I'm really happy that you are here to listen to this conversation that I had with Corey Bryant. Corey is an Ashtanga yoga teacher based in Nashville, Tennessee. He also is a Tibetan Buddhist meditation practitioner. And you can check him out on his website, which is yogashalanashville.com. You can also find the links at the bottom of his homepage on his website for all of his social media, but his handle on Facebook and IG is the same, at Yogashala Nashville. And I'm so thankful, thank you, Corey, for taking time to speak with me. And I just really enjoyed this conversation. And when I realized how much time we were on for, it felt like I just could have kept going and going and going. And Corey made me feel so comfortable. And even though it was our first time conversing, um, I felt like he was a friend and that I've known him for a long time. So I'm really appreciative. Uh, Thank you, Corey. So I hope you guys enjoy this conversation. It's good. I love it. (laughs) All right. I feel inspired. All right, let's begin. I'm really pleased to have Corey Bryant here today. And Corey, are you here with us? I am here. Thank you. Good to be here, Todd. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining. And you're um, located in Nashville, Tennessee. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah, for the past three years, almost exactly. That's amazing. Nashville, uh, well, Tennessee, my, my wife's family live in Tennessee and I, I love Tennessee and I love the opportunity to travel <laughs> up there. It's so beautiful. And just recently I drove up to Michigan via the 65 and went around and or through Nashville and it looked like it was exploding in terms of the amount of development <laughs> and building going on. Is, is it booming there? What's the feeling in Nashville right now? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, so the past several years, uh, it's been kind of one of these places to go, you know, Nashville, Austin. Uh, so there are a lot of folks moving in, um, and COVID actually, I think, um, escalated that process some. So a lot going on in terms of development, um, and growth and you see it just by looking even at our at the skyline of the city i mean it's changed a lot we actually have a skyline here in right. nashville right. um so that's saying something yeah that's cool you said you've been there for how long sorry three years so um we moved here my husband and i moved here in june june 15th of 2019 and I opened uh, Yoga Shala Nashville on July 15th, 2019, so a month later. Whoa, so you opened up right before 2020. Like you're in your, you were in your first year <laughs> of business, which is sometimes the most harrowing. And um, 
I mean, I know I have yoga teacher friends that <laughs> decided to get out of the yoga studio industry yeah. in 2019 yeah. and they were struggling because they're like, ah, oh, I'm so sad. I don't want to leave. And then when 2020 hit, I, I look, I, when I converse, I, I was, I was thinking that couldn't have been a better timing for you because this is a really tough endeavor right now. Um, that's, I guess is a good place to start. I, what, what yeah. was your experience with all that? How did you hold down the fort? How, how, what, what, what have you learned? And oh my God, what is that? What has it been like for you? It's been, wow. It's been something. So we opened July 15th, 2019. Before I opened, I, I did a lot of research, um, to try to find Ashtangi in Nashville. Yeah. And, um, cause there, there was no, not really. There's there's a couple places that teach an Ashtanga class, but there was no Mysore program and not not much Ashtanga here in Nashville. And so a lot of people don't aren't familiar with it at all, which is you know so different from I, I had been in DC for over 16 years. We had really strong Mysore programs, and then New York before that. So you know um, coming here it was a wake up call in, in a lot of ways, but. Um, so I, I, before I got here, I did some research, connected with the people that I could find. And there were about uh, 14, 15 people that uh, I actually corresponded with before I even got here. And then the month before I opened, as I was like preparing the Shala, they started coming in. Many of them started coming in and practicing with me. And so we had this like really good momentum and awesome people, good momentum going into the, to the opening. And, um, you know, a few people trickling in here and there. And things were going along pretty good. And then March of 2020, a week before COVID really hit, my neighborhood here, East Nashville, got demolished by a tornado. Wow. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was so crazy. It went right past my house, right past my the, the, the Shala. It didn't damage either neither my house nor the Shala, but I, I mean, so much of, of, of the buildings, houses, businesses around us were just uh, wiped out. So it was um, I, unlike anything I'd ever experienced, wow. except, well, I lived through 9-11, so, you know, in New York, so that Whoa. was, it was kind of like that. <laughs> um, so that happened, and then a week later, so that was March 7th, I believe, and March 14th, we had to close the shala. Double um, whammy, right? Like that. I remember the yeah. same the same feeling. Someone had uh, called me up, and or my my wife had said, "Hey, Todd, I you know this is going on," and and then someone said, "You know, um, they're closing studios up in Philly and up north, or you know, more right. more northeast." And I just couldn't believe it. I was in yeah. shock. I was in shock. I was like, "No." <laughs> No, there's just no way. There's no way. There's no way that could happen. And just like the next day, it was like, oh my god, this is actually happening. And the next day, it was like, oh my gosh, we're closing. I was like, no. Yeah, it was so crazy. I mean, uh, my my background prior to this is in public health, so um, I, you know, I, I I had a lot of uh, understanding around what was going on, and, and yeah. yeah, this was like the thing we had to do, and we were just completely closed for three months. And I, so it's kind of crazy because when I was back in DC, one of my very good friends, Jen Renee, 
uh, with oh, I love the, Jen. the head teacher. Jen's yeah, awesome. So I've met and practiced you, with her. Of course, because, well, I listened to your podcast with Holly. Oh, yeah. And I realized uh, I had tears in my eyes multiple times because I just loved Tim Miller and I know. Uh, had just the best experiences in, in Encinitas. And oh, so man, I hear hearing that. you guys talk about that was just like uh, really, you know, touching my heart. But um, anywho, so Jen and I are real close and um, she had long been encouraging me like, Corey, you need to get online. You need, you know, you, you can do this. Like she encouraging me to shoot video teachings and things like that. But it was just not my jam, you know? So yeah. I didn't, I had no aspirations to teach um, virtually in any way. And then that happened and I was like, oh my gosh, you know, this community is, is growing and uh, what am I going to do? So I very quickly, I mean, I think, it, you know, we closed on Saturday. On Monday, I, I started offering stuff on Zoom and I was shocked actually by how useful it was how meaningful it was, how much I could teach my tour through Zoom. Um, I still prefer teaching it in person, but Zoom is a good conduit. And so we just jumped on that. And that's what saved us. I mean, that plus the fact that having taught in D.C. for 11 years before I moved to Nashville, yeah. I had a really great community there, and those people are just amazing. And when I started teaching online, a lot, of, a bunch of them started joining the online classes. And oh, that's, that's cool. The combination of the D.C. influx and the folks we had here in Nashville is what sustained um, through COVID. Nice. And so, yeah. And we still, we still, like right now on Monday night, we have a, we call it a, a sangha gathering, uh, and a lot of those folks from the COVID time still plug in, and it's more of a, a meditation class. But, um, but yeah, it's, so that that's kind of how that went, um, and we worked through it. Um, there was a long period of time where it was just me and the shala um, practicing by myself, and then teaching on Zoom, you know, the only one in the room. Um, yes. And then uh, one student started coming in. He was comfortable coming in. He started coming in and practicing there with me. Um, and it, it was just like this gradual process of kind of working through it, you know. And, and it was, it taught me a lot in terms of um, community, you know, just yeah. the importance of community whether you're actually together in person or on, on a virtual platform, uh, people thrive through connection. And so that, that yeah. was a huge, huge part of it. Man, it's really cool to hear you go through all that because we had a very similar, similar experience, which makes mm -hmm. sense that it would be, you know, trying to, if you're holding down a studio and you're like not giving up and I'm going to, I'm going to keep showing up and just wait for this to rebuild and regrow. But it's, it's been a, it's, it's been a long process though. It hasn't like, there's been, it's not <laughs> yeah. like, it's not like I had this like delusion that I was going to reopen and everyone's going to be like, Oh my gosh, it's been so rough. We have to come back in. I mean, it, like I was a similar situation where I was the only one and maybe my dad, mm -hmm. my dad and my sister practice. So they, they come in and I was like, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> like, there's no one here. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting uh, what happened during that time in terms of 
um, people's relationship with their practice, yeah. you know, um, yeah. and um, learning to, for some, it was a, a, a matter of learning to practice more independently and, and, and keep it up from home. And then, you know, uh, quite a few others I saw just kind of move on to other things. And that's, that's fine. You know, that's, we all have to make our own way through these yeah. things. Um, yeah. But yeah, we've come out the other side transformed in a lot of ways. I mean, we lost some people, we gained some people. Um, and there's a thread of folks that just kind of rode it all the way through. So <laughs> nice. I noticed that on your website, the address is um, at a Presbyterian church. Is it? Do you, mm. is your yoga <laughs> studio within the church? It is. So that's kind of a, a, a good story. Um, back in DC, you know, DC real estate is so expensive, and um, my good friend Maggie Lively, uh, she had the brilliant idea to open her shala in Arlington, Virginia. So she was across the bridge, but um, in a church. And, you know, in the hopes of, of setting herself up with, with uh, lower rent and, and the ability to, like, actually make a go of it with a MISO program. Because, yeah. you know, just having a MISO program is, is not exactly the most lucrative proposition uh, going when it comes to yoga business. So I just... Um, jumped on her idea and I had a, a, a good friend and a student back in DC that was moving to Nashville just a few months ahead of me. And she was just awesome. She offered to um, help me get this place started. Cause I'm just the furthest thing from a business person. I mean, I, it, back in, in school at Purdue, I had to take management 200 and I, I thought I was going to just like, I didn't think I was going to make it, <laughs> but um so she helped me get this place going and, and, and get all that stuff set up business-wise and hooked me up with an accountant and, you know, just kind of got the, the foundation set. And we were looking at a map and I, was, we, I knew I wanted to be in East Nashville. This is where my brother had lived for years and, and my husband and I just liked this neighborhood. And so we're looking at the map and I'm like, well, this location right here would be ideal and I pointed and there was a church right there and it was this church and we called them up and they said yeah actually we have space we want to come see it and it just so happened that that they they did and they had this organization that they were working with that helped churches like to try to sustain themselves because mm. churches struggled too and mm. it all just kind of came together I mean um, this is the only place we talked to the only place we looked at and just kind of fell in love with it immediately. That's really and cool. It's a pretty special vibe. I mean, the thing is, I grew up Presbyterian until I was about twelve. Ah. Um, and the religion in the Christian sense has plagued me and challenged me for, for, for it did for many years, primarily because I'm gay. Um, but and so the idea of being in a church was it that was a process in and of itself for me personally. But the thing that really sold me with this church was as soon as I went to their website, they had statements about inclusivity mm. and they are a very welcoming, very open um, church community. They are very um, cognizant about um, gender neutrality and using uh, proper pronouns to, to recognize the person for who they are and, 
and, and really welcoming of the trans community, which is very important to me. And so, uh, it just felt right. And so it's just sort of this, a bit of a coming home in the Presbyterian sense, even though I'm, I'm not a Presbyterian, I'm a Buddhist, but <laughs> that's, well, that's another line of talk. <laughs> yeah, we'll definitely go down that line too. I'm, I'm curious. Um, I've noticed from my own travels to Tennessee and in different areas in, in the Southeastern U S that mm. the Christian, um, faith might be very leery of yoga and, or have mm. a lot of resistance toward it. And yeah, what have you come across in relation to, now it sounds like this particular church is extremely open yeah. m- more so than what maybe I typically come across, but I'm curious if, um, <laughs> You know, do you find that you really have to communicate in a way that lets people know that you're not infringing upon their religious beliefs by them coming and practice yoga with you? Uh, to to some extent, yes. Um, yeah, we are in the South. Uh, it is different. Um, this is my my first time really living in, truly in the South. Uh, my husband grew up in, in North Carolina, so for him it was a bit more familiar. Yeah. Um, but there definitely are like these cultural differences here. A lot of them, um, kind of hovering around, uh, religion, Christianity in particular. Um, and, uh, so I think it is something that we've had to be a little bit sensitive to. Um, and also just very, um, uh, what am I do? But, well, as Tim would say, Tim Feldman, like approaching it with loving kindness, because, uh, you know, a lot of it has to do with just a, a, a lack of uh, familiarity with what yoga is. And so it's been a it's a it's partly an education process of just yeah. sharing um, and sharing from a place of, of loving kindness and and acceptance. Nice. And can you give me a condensed version of mm-hmm. your uh, Ashtanga influences that have gotten you to where you are today in terms of teaching? Yeah. It doesn't have to be condensed. You can give me the long version <laughs> too. But I, when, I, when I looked at your bio, I saw a really amazing um, group of people that I, that I respect yeah. as well. And so I, I was curious if you could... Give me sure. some insight into how you first got involved in Ashtanga and then what brought you to here. Yeah. I mean, I feel super fortunate. Um, and I started, what happened, I lived in New York uh, in the early 2000s, from about 2000 to 2004. So I was, and I lived um, on 23rd Street between 9th and 10th Avenues in Chelsea. And 9-11 happened. I was at work across the river in New Jersey. My coworker said, oh, my God, something's happening. We ran to the break room. We saw the plane hit one of the buildings on TV. We ran up to the roof of our building. She was freaking out because her sister was on the train going into the towers. And we stood there, and uh, we watched the rest of it happen. And it's, you know, yeah, it still makes me emotional to this day. It was just mind blowing. Um, I can't imagine. And I, you know, and the first impulse was I just wanted, I, I wanted to go home. I wanted to go right back into the city and, and like make sure that 
I don't know, just do whatever I could. Uh-huh. Um, so the thing was, is that they, they actually stopped incoming traffic to the city. So I couldn't return to the city until the next day. Um, and that train ride back in the city was the most insane, surreal thing I've ever experienced. Um, just dead quiet. Uh, with all of us just looking out the window, watching the smoke come up, you know, I mean, it was just so wild. So anyway, it was a super stressful time. And I lived on an emergency route. 23rd Street is one of the main thoroughfares and it's, and it's an emergency route. So it was just nonstop sirens and, and people cheering the emergency response personnel. And, you know, that was just my life for, for months. Um, and <clears throat> Uh, a patch of hair fell out of the side of my head and I was like, what is going on? I went to the doctor and he said, you think you might be stressed? And I'm like, why would I be stressed? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not stressed. And you know, that was just kind of how out of touch I was with with what was really happening within Mm -hmm. me. And um, a friend of mine said, come with me to yoga. And I was like, okay. And, And he took me to Jeeva Mukti. Uh, Jiva Mukti Yoga School at Union Square. Well, actually, no, this was before it moved to Union Square, further down Broadway. And it just rocked my world. I mean, I absolutely loved it right from the beginning. And I was so fortunate because at that time, I was practicing with Sharon Gannon, David Life, Ruth Maninti, um, Yoga Shuri, like the just amazing teachers, all of whom, um, considered um, Patabi Joyce one of their teachers. So they were all very schooled in Ashtanga. Um, you know, Jiva Mukti was, was, a, was birthed kind of through Ashtanga. Yes. So there was, at that time in particular, a very close relationship between the two. Uh, and I I would go every week, you know, to take class with David, Sharon, and Ruth. And, and they were just, like, they became so important to me and really got me through that time. And it, I mean, I was on the verge of being an addict. Um, I had moved to New York, a young gay man who had been kind of like, by all intents and purposes, like a good boy up to that point. Worked my way through my bachelor's, my master's, my PhD, um, kind of toeing the line. And then I got to New York and people started giving me attention and, 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 and offering me drugs. And I was like, oh, yeah, sure, I'll try it. I mean, I'm kind of that sort of I'll try anything. I mean, I like trying things. Anyway, <laughs> it got a little out of hand. 9-11, you know, it's just a lot was happening. And yeah. yoga just really, like, woke me up. It was just like a sledgehammer. Like, bam, like, who are you, you know? And what is what are you doing? And what are you here for? Yeah. And I, um, uh, I feel so fortunate that Jiva Mukti was the first place I went and it was at that time in history because what they taught me just has carried me through to this day and it was of course through them that I was introduced to Ashtanga. I started in about 2005 going to lead Ashtanga classes. Um, it took years before I stepped into a real mindset room though. Um, and I I, I mean, I part of that was because I really loved Jiva Mukti, and I did the teacher training in 2008, and I was teaching Jiva Mukti in D.C., and I had an amazing group of folks that were taking my classes every week, and we just had this incredible community there. And, uh, and 
at some point, 2011, 2010, 11, I was doing a lot of international travel for my job at, at the Food and Drug Administration. And I picked up David Swenson's book and just started doing it myself because I was often, I was on the road, I was in hotel rooms. Yeah. And that's really when the Mysore kind of started to take hold of me. And then I came back and started going to Mysore with Jen. And that really set me on that path. And that's what led me to take, I did training with Tim Miller and did his second series training. And and then I found David Greig in about 2015. And I studied very intensely with David Greig for over three years, apprenticing with him and just going with him all over the world. Um, spending months in India and so forth. Um, and that, that was tremendous learning process. Nice. Um, really nice. grateful for working with him. Yeah. Where is he located? And then is most he recently, in, you know, is he in oh, Philly? Is he in Philly or why did yeah, I think David so, Gehrig's was, was he in Philly for a little while? He, he, yeah. And he's still there as far as I know. Um, he, uh, yeah, he's lived in Philly for, no, maybe 10 years. Nice. He had a shala there. Um, it was awesome. Um, it was on Jewelers Row in downtown Philly on the third floor of this old tenement building. And uh, just great energy in there. Loved, I loved practicing there. And um, uh, um, Elizabeth Crozier actually um, took over that space uh, back before COVID as well. Just She and I were kind of in a similar boat. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but she's doing great and it's still there. And she Yay. just repainted it. Yay. <laughs> yeah. That's good to hear. I like hearing the, the like mm-hmm. hanging in there, hanging, not yeah. giving up and stories. I, mean, I feel yeah. super grateful for the DC community because Michael Joel Hall, Maggie Lively, uh, Jen Renee, um, Chris Anderson. It was like just some really great. Uh, teachers, practitioners there that I spent my days with. I mean, we were just like this little band of Ashtangis hanging out, practicing, teaching, chatting. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Have you ever, uh, uh, per, I've been teaching Ashtanga now for um, 16 years and I'm not authorized or, mm. you know, <laughs> me neither. And, um, has that ever been an issue for you or have you, how much thought have you given that over the years? Is it, what, what's well, your I wish I could with that? Say, yeah. I wish I could say I hadn't, I mean, that's been internally a bit of an up and down struggle because the thing is I really wanted to go to my store back in the, in the mid 2000s. Um, but I, I worked, Yeah, you know, and I mean, yeah. I grew up in Indiana. I, um, I, I, I love how you said very, that. I, I worked. <laughs> well, I, you know, I had I to work. Understood. I was like, how, how are these people going for a month? Like my boss is never going to give me a month, you yeah. know? Yeah. And, and the thing is, is that I, I, my, my, perspective and, and uh, place here in the world has shifted so much over the years. And, but I, I grew up in a very uh, hardworking, 
um, devoutly Christian uh, farm family. And uh, the idea of just going off to India for a month, uh, just the most foreign thing I could have been presented with. Yeah. And so it just took many years for me to get my head around that. And by that point, um, Patavi Joyce had passed away. Um, Sharat, you know, had taken over. And, uh, and, and then when I did get to a place, so at the end of 2015, I resigned from the Food and Drug Administration with the intention of committing myself full-time to yoga and opening uh, my own place. And uh, at that point, I was like, okay, I, I, I can go now. Like, um, and so, but at that point I was also very focused on my study with David Garik and he does a month in India. Mm -hmm. So I went, but I studied with him and, um, the other complicating factors were, you know, there was also the craziness around actually trying to get your application into my store. Um, and to get through that and get accepted. And I never could kind of figure out that process. And, and to be honest, the other factor here is that I just have never, and I, I hope people don't strike me down for this, but I, I just have never felt a pull to study with Sherrod. Mm-hmm. And I yeah, tend to follow yeah. my instincts. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not criticizing him or anything. I it's just, the truth i haven't i don't i haven't had that pull yeah well i hear you and i totally appreciate you just being really honest about it Hmm. yeah i have a yeah (laughs) (laughs) i I hear you man i hear you i personally think that i love to practice and I've had a chance to study with really great teachers. I did have a chance to mm-hmm. go to India and practice with Patabi Joyce and Sharat in Mysore. And then yeah. after that, prior prior to that, because my wife and I had taken Bikram yoga teacher training mm-hmm. and we owned a Bikram yoga studio or co-owned a Bikram yoga studio in San Diego, that mm-hmm. there was such an intense cult vibe around that scene and Mm -hmm. it was kind of dark like there was a or um, maybe i'll choose a different word it was um it was it didn't feel like a healthy environment it just Mm -hmm. had a lot of um bizarre elements to it and i got so pulled in like one of the things that bikram would really harp on people about is if they wore green it was i i really don't have a good answer for as to why and there's different stories about why it, it really, when I look mm-hmm. back on it, it seems more like it was a psychological uh, way to attack people, like just pick something really random, like the color green. But one, mm-hmm. and, and so I remember going to buy shoes one day and I was like, I really like these shoes. There are some green Adidas and, and I, and Tamara's like, get them. And I'm like, yeah, but if Bikram sees me wearing them, like I, I won't be able to go. And so I kind of got that roped in where I was scared <laughs> to wear green shoes around them, you know, like, like, and mm-hmm. so once I, I left that and I felt like I just don't ever want to go down that path again where I'm mm-hmm. beholden and kind of blinded by 
that sort of thing. So it was almost like for better or for worse, maybe I got scarred from that experience that doesn't allow for me to um, trust that fully in that department again. <laughs> but so anywho, um, I really, I understand where you're coming from and I, and I agree with you. Uh, yeah. So yeah. I, I hope that, yeah, I don't, I'm not judged because of it, but I guess if I am, you know, that's life, but you know, right. uh, I, 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 I'm with you on that. So I, I'm happy to hear that, to be honest. <laughs> well, the thing is, yeah, I mean, I really respect, uh, folks who have put in that, that time and effort and I, and I, and I get, uh, the value in that. Um, and I, I believe, for example, that uh, one of the big problems that I see uh, in terms of yoga teaching these days is that there's uh, too many folks that don't have an established practice um, before they actually get move toward teaching. And, yeah. and the practice is the best teacher, you know. And I... Um, and I wanted to respect that process. Like that was the, that was part of the struggle for me. Like, so what, what I did was, um, I, like I said, I mean, I was doing committed study with David and at one point he asked us to send him an email. Like, I think it was like three things that we were hoping, um, I think I forget how he worded it, but to like kind of get out of the month that we were about to spend in India. And I said, um, one of the things I said was that I would, wanted to uh, put myself on the path toward eventually someday being able to teach my source. And when I met with him, he was like, what is this about eventually someday? And I was like, well, you know, I, I need to go to, to my source and, and get authorized. And he was like, hmm. I mean, he's like, I respect that, but Corey, you, you have a lot of knowledge that people would really benefit from. Mm. And, uh, he's like, don't sell yourself short. And that, I mean, for me, I guess that's a kind of a common theme that I run into a lot of my, my friends, my, my, my colleagues, uh, that, uh, have, have told me that, you know, like, mm. why are you selling yourself short? Yeah. But I guess yeah. I just, I see like the world that we live in today. is so Oh my God, all the, all the social media and all the, this nonstop information flowing in every which direction. And it, it's just such an overload. So part of, I mean, partly I, I it's old school, I guess, but I, I kind of just like to kind of stay reserved, work with the people that are here with me to work with. And, um, I don't know, that just feels more true to myself than, than yeah. trying to, take over the, the, the digital world. I respect that. But that's it, what you call it. <laughs> <laughs> In some levels, do you feel like teaching is as simple as having, like you said, you noticed that there's people that are embarking upon taking yoga teacher training and teaching, but maybe haven't practiced and or spent enough time feeling it and being able to mm -hmm. convey. And it seems like the way that we teach is based off of our own personal experience and, and, and having had injury and having 
bumped up against our grief from the past and reconciling different things from our experience and seeing how it all fits together so that when we meet someone else that's going through the same thing, we can say, oh, I can, I can totally relate with what's going on. I, I had that too. And, and mm-hmm. it seems like it, it, as long as you have time in the saddle in terms of practice that we could still be um, productive in the ability to work with, work with each other, work with people. So I know. I, it seems kind of simple yeah. to me. It seems like you learn something and you teach it. Well, it's, yeah. It's <laughs> yes, and, you know, the learning process, like that's, that's something to kind of look at. So, you know, one of my, 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 my art guru, uh, my um, lama, uh, his name is Chokyanima Rinpoche. He's the head of the Kyaning Shedrapling Monastery in Nepal, where I took refuge. And he often talks about um, adversity and difficulty and that the challenging aspects of life are the actual best opportunities for deep practice, mm. for, for, for practice, like really putting your practice into to effect and, and helping to progress on your path. And I think you kind of just hit the nail on the head. Like one of the things about being like practicing for years and, and, and what you learn from that is learning how to, to keep, to maintain, continue practicing, even when your body isn't cooperating or your marriage is falling apart, or your mother is dying, or all these things, you know, that we face in life, those are the times when you, you pull those resources that you're gaining from your practice and, and use them to even go deeper into it. And I think that that's um, a really important aspect of yoga uh, and or, and when I say yoga, so here's another thing that kind of drives me crazy is, um, Yoga is meditation. Meditation is yoga. Like we, you know, live in Western world where when people say yoga, they just automatically think about physical practice. And that is just one little piece of it. And um, I really encourage here at the Shala when we, that we start to reframe our mindset so that when the word practice is said, we're thinking in all sorts of different aspects of life that your practice can Mm. Yeah, it can be in in effect, you know, and um, and and we want a practice that we can do even if our body can no longer do it at all, mm. you know. Yeah. That yeah. that to me, that's the real yoga. And so, um, yeah, I think that that there's just an under appreciation for what yoga is, uh, how impactful it can be in our lives. And how important it is for a teacher to have experience um, before stepping into the role of teaching it. Yeah, agreed. Do can you explain your path in relation to meditation? You first seeking meditation, and now to the mm-hmm. point where you are, where you've taken refuge yeah. under a Tibetan teacher. Mm-hmm. Oh wow! Um, this is another point in life where I just feel so, so blessed and fortunate. Um, I, my first uh, relationship with a, with a man ended in 1998. 
<laughs> uh, say say that again. Say, Help me understand your your the, so the first relationship you had that ended. Yeah. So so okay. So here's the thing. I like I said, I grew up on a farm, southern Indiana. You know, picture this like. I I um I knew I was gay from about the time I was 11. Um I had uh, a boyfriend pretty much from the time I was 12 till I was 18, the same the same same boy. Um uh, I was totally in love with him, but unfortunately that came to a crashing end and at that point I was like, "Oh my god, okay, I'm going to be straight. I'm going to go to Purdue and I'm going to make myself straight." And so I went to Purdue and I did pretty good at controlling my mind and making myself straight through my bachelor's degree. And toward the end of that, I met a guy that just kind of made that all fall apart. And, and he was my first boyfriend. He had gone to Berkeley. He was just like so well-versed in gay culture. And like, I was totally, I had, it was like a fish out of water, but it was crazy. Anyway, um, we, he, I then, uh, went on to do my PhD at the university of Massachusetts and he moved with me from Indiana to Massachusetts. And, uh, after about a year in Massachusetts, that relationship fell apart. And so did I, I mean, I, that was one of my rock bottom points in life, like, because I was so afraid of being gay by myself. Like can I, can I was I... clinging to him for dear life because I... he was protecting me kind of you know what I mean that makes sense at this point did your family realize or did you speak <laughs> with them about this or where are you at in relation to being open about it yeah so that was a huge process um my my family did not know until we had already moved to Massachusetts and once we were in Massachusetts I had come out to them uh and that was a very difficult period of about 10 years in terms of my family life because ten, it was ten, very hard for them. to 10 accept. years? Yeah. It took about 10 years before we got to um, what I'll call a, a good place. Yeah. 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 But that's amazing so, stuff that, that there, there's a, there was a process there that you, that you can say <laughs> a good place. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, I think a lot of people don't, realize and that's why you know june is pride month and it's very important and and the pride comes because we are still i mean all over the world and and still in the united states so many gay lesbian transgender people are oppressed are um you know looked down upon and or not seen at all and um and 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 it is it creates just a really uh, difficult internal dynamic for a person when you aren't seen and all and and also when you don't see anyone like you you know when i was mm. growing up i did not know i had no reference for anyone being a, as a gay person mm. male or female um, and so i just knew like this this was that this was that there was something different about me and that it, but I also thought that it made me an abomination and that I was going to hell. Mm. And so, you know, it was, 
<laughs> that's a lot to try to work through from the time <laughs> you're 11. <laughs> so this is the other thing I think that a lot of people don't quite understand. It's like for a gay people, at least in my um, generation, and and it we have like a delayed um, adolescence or a delayed um, you know growing up period. It's mm-hmm. like I didn't actually get to start dating until I was 24 years old. Mm. You know, and um, that's that's interesting. And at that point, I was scared to death I was going to get AIDS, HIV, um, and I and I was scared to death to be alone as a gay guy. Mm. So yeah, when that relationship fell apart, it was super difficult. But the but the silver lining with that is that a really good friend of mine, she went to Smith College, um. She gave me Pema Chodron's book called that's titled "When Things Fall Apart." Yeah, I have and that, that was my introduction to Buddhism, which is a, is common. A lot of folks like that's like the first book that they encounter. <laughs> yeah. Such a great book. It's a perfect title. <laughs> yeah, and that book helped me kind of pull out of that um, that heartbreak. Yeah, and start to stand on my own as a gay man. And, uh, and also started me on the path of Buddhism. Um, you know, it, it, and it took years because, um, I was also, you know, then a few years later, uh, walked into Jeeva Mukti. So there was, you know, there's some commonalities yeah. and I, I do a workshop on this. There's some really important commonalities between Buddhism and yoga, but they're not the same thing. And, um, it took me it took me a long time to just kind of uh, work sort through all that and get to a place where I felt very authentic in uh, taking refuge. So I just I tend to not do things lightly um, and really try to um, be sincere mm. whenever I'm I'm taking on something like that, be it my store or refuge or happy. So yeah. Can you explain? Can you explain for us what the term "refuge" actually, uh, or or what it means in 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 greater depth? Because it sounds simple. If you're not familiar with Buddhism, you think, "Well, I'm taking refuge," but what does that mean? But Mm -hmm. in Tibetan Buddhism, to take refuge, there's uh, we want to be making a decision that we're going to stand behind for a bit of time. Can you explain what it does entail? Yeah. So what it entails in um, sort of ceremonial uh, standpoint is uh, approaching your, um, the lineage holder. In this case, for me, it was Chokunima Rinpoche. Generally, it's the, the abbot or the head of a monastery or a uh, a, a lama, um, uh, the uh, uh, individual that is recognized as a, a as having achieved certain level of Buddhist awakening, um, and you approach them and ask to take refuge, and they then it's sort of this ceremony where they confer, like in it's a a, a transmission of sorts. Um, in my case, it involved him like touching 
certain um, sacred objects to my head and then snipping a piece of my hair and um, giving me a um, Tibetan name. Mm. And so it's, it's, it's a, it's a little um, like formal ceremony where you are um, taking refuge in the qualities that the Buddha represents. So uh, love, compassion, um, awakened mind. Uh, you are taking refuge in the teachings that uh, the Buddha gave us and refuge in the community, the Sangha, that, so that, that, that follow those teachings. So it's taking refuge in the, the Buddha, the qualities of the Buddha, the Dharma, the teachings, and the Sangha, the community. And those are known as three jewels of Buddhism. And so that's, that's what it is. It's just, or not just, but it is a statement of um, sincere commitment to uh, following the teachings of the Buddha. Nice. How do you integrate the meditation practice that you've learned through this tradition into or with your Stanga yoga practice? Well, so I feel that the uh, asana practice of Ashtanga is perfect for integration with the Tibetan Buddhist practice mm. because Tibetan Buddhism, also known as Vajrayana Buddhism, is uh, tantric. So it's also known as tantric Buddhism. And uh, Ashtanga is from Hatha Yoga and is also tantric. And in fact, like it, you, it, I, I have come across readings of late that are just flat out, you know, pointing out that um, Tibetan Buddhism is different. It is this Vajrayana school because it has this infusion of Hatha Yoga Mm. Uh, into it and that makes sense because they're both coming out of the Himalayan region so um, uh, so the physical practice the tantra physical practice uh, side of Tibetan Buddhism is very important and that's it's so interesting because like when I take people to Nepal one of the things they see is that the monks don't just sit <laughs> and meditate they do all sorts of things. And some of them are very physical things, dancing, chanting, playing instruments, um, building sculptures, uh, all kinds of different activities, walking around the stupa that are part of the, the meditation practice. Right. And so w- one of the things that really opened my eyes to this was the, was a trip I took to Thailand back in 2012. And I met a guy, it was at a, a work meeting and an FDA thing. And this guy worked for a food company, but he had been a forest monk for 10 years. And we struggled this conversation. He somehow picked up that I had this interest and he offered to take me to the, to the monastery, mm. to the forest monastery. And I went and it was amazing. And one of their main practice there was walking meditation. And so I'm with him and we're walking around checking things out and I'm seeing these people doing this walking meditation and it just, something just, a light bulb went off and I was like, that, 
we can do that in Ashtanga. Like mm. you take that same mindset. It's all about motivation. And this is like such an important aspect of Buddhist practice and Buddhist meditation practice. It's about the motivation that you um, are cultivating, that you take into the, the practice, whatever it is that you're doing. And so, um, you know, the, the way that we connect the breath and the movement uh, and you put that motivation in on top of that and you've got this moving meditation. And so I just uh, carry that right over into uh, nice. my seated practice nice. as well. Great answer. That makes perfect sense. Oh, good. <laughs> I can follow that. <laughs> I had the visual of some monks walking in Thailand and a light bulb going off above your head of like, all right, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to turn that walking meditation. I'm going to fuse that into my Ashtanga practice. There's no separation. It's the same thing. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's the thing I, I see so often, you know, is that we tend to, it's, it's definitely a Western thing. Um, tend to want to categorize things and we have such an attachment to dualistic thinking of right and wrong and good and bad. And, and that's just not really how the world works. Uh, most things are somewhere in between. And, you know, when you can accept that and see that, it really opens up a lot of, a lot of doors, a lot of windows, a lot of, of you, um, yeah. to be able to, and I, you know, for me, a, a big factor, I was sitting in a meeting at the World Trade Organization in 2014, and I was miserable. Um, I was on the U.S. delegation, of course, uh, there to deal with issues related to food trade. And I disagreed with just about everything that my colleagues on the U.S. side were saying. Um, I just didn't jive with the way they, the, the, the sort of consumer economic based way that, that the U S um, approaches most things. And, uh, I was, and I, and at the same time, I, I had this, I kept thinking about, gosh, if I wasn't, if I wasn't so in love with my husband, I would just go be a monk right now. Mm. <laughs> and these are two very different sides yeah. of, the, of yeah. the coin, right? Like yeah. sitting here in the World Trade Organization and thinking about going to be a monk. And I thought, <laughs> yeah. well, what's the next best thing? The next best thing is just to commit my life 100% to um, the practice, study, and teaching uh, of yoga. And when I say yoga, I'm, I'm, it's, all, it's a more encompassing word. You know, it's like beyond the asana. It's all of it. And Buddhism. And so... Buddhists are yogis too. I mean, I think I make a t-shirt that says that. <laughs> so, um, anywho, uh, I sat there and I wrote this little manifesto that I still have. And I decided that day that I was going to resign. And it took me a while to kind of actually do that, put the plan in place. But, um, I just, uh, knew that I could, you, and you can do this even if you're still working at the FDA, but you, we can, uh, bring the practice into all aspects of our lives, you know? And Absolutely. so that's, that's just what I wanted to do. And for me, the way to do that felt, felt most productive, most useful to the world. If I could try and get out here and, 
and be teaching at the Shala. Nice. I, I, I'm, a, I'm having a visual of you sitting at a desk at the WTO <laughs> conference. <laughs> And yeah, while the they're, while they're speaking, Ukraine. you got like a little pad out and you're like sketching out like, I'm out of here. I'm, I, I, I'm, I I'm so formulating my here. plan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I hope this doesn't take us too sideways on this topic, but since you uh-huh. have a background working for the Food and Drug Administration and we're even paying attention to these things on that level, um, something that I've been noticing a lot in scanning news articles is where we're at in terms of world food supply right now. And Mm. um, I don't want to go down a path of like, you know, fear of resource and, you know, being fearful of the future and that type of thing. But I can't, I can't overlook how much, um, how much news there is, and and I'm obviously seeking it out too. So, but how much news there is around where we're at in relation to what's going on with the war, what's going on with like lack of fertilizers, the um, decrease of grain production, the way the environment has been affecting what's going on in Brazil and their grain production. And then obviously with the port closed in, you know, Ukraine and all that, um, that, I just can't help but get this feeling that there's the potential for less food security and maybe here in America and or places where there's a lot of infrastructure, it won't be so much of an issue, but I keep seeing articles about what's going on in Africa right now in terms of starvation with children and what are you, are you paying attention to any of that? I'm not saying that you should or shouldn't be mm. paying attention, but are you, is, right. your, is your finger on that pulse right now? And are you watching any of that? And do you have any thoughts regarding this? Well, yeah, I do. Um, I, well, to, to be honest though, in regards to, I don't take in nearly as much news as I, as I once did. Um, I just find that um, my well-being is, better if i if i limit that um i agree with you i I am aware i do try to at least stay somewhat you know tuned in a bit but um but uh, but what i will say is that i'm not surprised um at all um there's this is like a confluence of so many confounding factors that have been building for years um and the u.s is by no means (laughs) and like you said i mean i don't mean to like create fear, but the U S is by no means insulated from, uh, concern. Mm-hmm. One of the factors is like the, um, the move of agriculture to, um, localized parts of the country. So for instance, in the United States that we used to have a much more diverse and, uh, a much more, um, uh, geographically spread out, um, agricultural system, but, so much of it has moved to California. Mm. And then you have major problems in California with water. And water is absolutely necessary. So that's a huge problem. Secondly, we have like, you know, this massive animal agricultural complex, which is just destroying the environment. And there's a lot there. there I feel like it's like the, the climate change and, and environmental concerns 
aren't getting nearly as much airplay as they used to because there's so much other stuff going on. But obviously those concerns are just going escalating. And um, the, the thing that doesn't get nearly enough attention is that, you know, a lot of the, the impact on our environment, the negative impact is coming from animal agriculture. And so, um, industrialized animal agriculture. There's a big difference between industrialized animal agriculture and the uh, farms that I grew up on. Yeah. But the farms yeah. that I grew up on barely exist anymore, and you know, in the U.S. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, so that's huge. And then you, you know, you've got the increasing uh, population. You've got uh, inflation, you've got shipping challenges, you got like all these different things coming together. And, um, it's, yeah, it's just a lack of, of, um, of follow through the cha- The thing that I see too, that's so disheartening is that back when I was working in the government, there, there are great people working in our government. Um, I worked with some really awesome people. Uh, and a lot, for instance, with regard to COVID, we did a ton of work on pandemic preparedness that could have been super useful when COVID happened. But because Trump was in office, and not just because Trump was in office, but because every time a new administration comes into office, they scrap a lot of what was done before them and try to start all over again so they can put their name on it. And it's mm-hmm. just so wasteful. And so I actually, when COVID started, I called up some of my friends at, at FDA because I, I said to my husband, Richard, I'm like, I feel bad. Like, maybe maybe I need to go back. Like, maybe there's something I can do to help for this situation. And I called my friends, and they were like, Corey, they're not even using us. Like, mm. And these were people who spent years working on development of models and, and response systems for uh, things exactly like the pandemic. So it... Yeah. Even yeah, there's, even though there all this time and energy is put into having programs set up in place that when it comes time for them to actually be implemented, you're saying you witness that it just doesn't even get used. So right. almost like a, just a waste of resource and time that and is, energy. It's a, it's a big <laughs> yeah. waste because there's a lot of like starting over. Yeah. You know. That makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, uh, I, and I agree with you a hundred percent. I'm trying so hard to not want to <laughs> look at the news. I'm trying so hard not to, cause it does, it works me up. And I, I know that's not good for me on that. Yeah. Note, you know, the thing <sighs> is, I think about the, the old days when I was a kid, we had three news, we had three channels, three channels. Yeah. And on Sunday nights, I think two of them were showing hee haw. Like, the news was on at a certain time and if you wanted to watch it that's when you watched it or you got your yeah. newspaper yeah. you read your newspaper and that was it yeah. and i think there's a lot to be said for that yeah yeah i agree <laughs> i hear you man i hear you oh my gosh oh my gosh well things have changed so much right i mean what what year were you born yeah uh, 1970. Cool. I just I'm, turned 52. Oh, congrats. I'm, I'm not far behind. I was born in 73. I mean, oh, okay, uh, cool. la- last night I just went and saw Tears for Fears, 
live. Oh, awesome. Wow. They were so Everybody wants to, to rule the world. <laughs> <laughs> just a full flashback from the 80s. And, 80, you know, I just, uh, <laughs> the, the 80s was a classic era. I mean, I know oh my God. if there's anyone young the listening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Great. Uh, you know what's so funny is my niece is um, 17 and she texted me couple days ago and she was like Corey I think Uncle Corey I think you and Uncle Richard will really like this song and it was Running Up That Hill by Kate Bush oh and yeah she had heard it on Stranger Things yeah and, and I and I it's funny that oh you bring that up oh my gosh Louie like this is my jam <laughs> <laughs> someone else I saw a friend of mine uh, she goes well the one good thing about Stranger Things is the kids now are aware of Kate Bush and I, and I was yeah. cracking up because uh, that is I, I did see that episode actually with that song in there and I'm like oh I forgot about that song that's such a classic song exactly man Kate Bush and punk to the rescue oh man I'm telling you <laughs> I'm telling you have you watched the Stranger Things? Have you done it? No. Yeah. I, I watched a little bit of the first season, but yeah. then, uh, yeah. I don't know, lost track of that one. I hear you. I'm just a fan of the, the old 80s nostalgia. The Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Remember, remember <laughs> like in the, apart from rolling your window down and pushing the lock on the door up and down to, but you know, like that little corner piece, that little corner piece window that you could like push the lever up and that you could spin oh, the window yeah. in to get the air to blow in on you. That oh, thing was that epic. Uh, like the unimportant things, but somehow they, they seem like they, um, they, they, that was like all that existed in the moment. Like, you know, it was hot as heck out and you Mm -hmm. can get a little breeze to blow on you. Well, um, yeah, you're, you know, aunt or uncle blew smoke in your face and driving down. Oh, big time, right? With no seatbelts on. I, mean, I know. Yeah. Well, smoking in the car. Oh, yeah. Oh, there was God. no, they weren't worried about us at all. There was no concern of like, <laughs> should I be worried about the fact that these poor kids in the back are choking on my, my cigarette fumes? But there wasn't. There was nah. no concern about that whatsoever. <laughs> And, uh, but nowadays if you get in a car and someone is smoking, it's like, it's pretty intense. Like, have you, I, oh probably, I don't know. I probably, I when does I that even up. happen anymore? <laughs> <laughs> what, what about, um, I mean, uh, do you, I mean, I'm getting back, back into a serious question here, but, sure. um, do you have contempt for Christianity because hmm. of the fear no. of hell and the, and the response that you've received from hmm that and then did that did that swip, um press you toward uh, connecting through or into buddhism you answered the question Good pretty question. quick you I mean you quickly yeah. said no so i i'm guessing that right. you worked through some of those some of those issues but <laughs> well let me tell you yeah so um so i i've always loved science um uh, my phd is in food chemistry um, you know, I spent a lot of my academic career working in laboratories, uh, and even part of my professional life. When I first was working in New York, I was I was working in a in a lab. Um, uh, so for me, once I kind of got out on my own um, and was going through school and stuff, I I pretty much considered myself an atheist. Like I I kind of just turned my back on on Christianity um, and didn't think about it that much. 
and then you know that the the book on Buddhism uh, and the yoga practice started bringing it back up for me. And of course, like I had mentioned earlier, like you know, I I was very I'm very well versed in the Bible. Um, had studied it quite a lot as a kid, and um, and so I. I, whenever I encountered these things, Buddhism and yoga, I still wasn't, uh, I, I was just uh, taking it in. Like, and yeah, yeah. at a certain point, uh, I did start to feel like, okay, maybe I'm not atheist, you know, like, exactly. Yeah. Um, but, I, so... But I also began to realize that, like, I did have, um, I did have animosity toward, uh, Christianity. Um, and so I, I kind of put in some effort to, to work with that and, and to try to, try to let that go. Um, and I, and I feel really great about the place I've come to with all of that because I, I believe that, um, well, Edwin Bryant, uh, I was listening to him give a teaching on the Yoga Sutras uh, a few years ago, and he said something along the lines of um, there could be more than one type of liberation. And I was like, wow, yeah, I, I'm kind of digging that statement. Like, mm. I think that um, that all of these um, contemplative practices, um, at face value, at their at their root, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, can all be a conduit toward uh, less suffering through uh, more love and more compassion, um, and that's what I'm all about. You yeah. know, so. Yeah. Um, I kind of, as I say, have said to people, like, I, I, I'm, I'm down with Jesus. Like, I, I, I can, I can dig a lot of what, you know, what he said and did. Um, it's just the misuse of what he said and did that yeah. really, yeah, uh, doesn't sit well with me. Yeah, good answer. So you can say that about a lot of things. So, yeah. Right, right. Good point. You know, because humans can really get in there and mess stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> we're so creative and we're also it. so good. <laughs> yeah. Really using, misusing our creative power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's like, why, you know, what what is the point in, um, in, Focusing in on something that 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 creates more otherism, you know, mm. and when I and the otherism to me encompasses the racism and homophobia and transphobia and like all these um, ways that people um, seem to latch onto to create some sort of separation or difference between them and someone else, and um, and it's it's just really not fruitful in terms of us having uh, a peaceful harmonious world to live in 
Um, and I, I think that one of the things that's really helpful about meditation practice is that you, you, you go internal and sit with what's coming up and let go of this kind of conceptual body that we're so attached to, you know, our body image, you could say, of, um, well, how our name, our, our height, our weight, our, what we think of ourselves, what we think other people think of us, all of that, just like let all of that go and you go into the body that you're actually in, like your, your experience um, and the sensations, the things that are coming up within that field of experience. And you start to realize that they're the, like, the same as everybody else. Like we all process through these things at different times, maybe in different lifetimes, if you, if you believe that. And, uh, that can really level the playing field. And yeah. it just doesn't, at that point, it doesn't matter what your gender mm. is, um, mm. and how many ear piercings you have or tattoos or, you know, it's just like all the things that, um, that people use to, to put up this wall between them and somebody else. Yeah. Good point. Do you think that people, if I'm having a hard time understanding something or understanding someone because I feel like they're different from me and, but then I meet them and mm. I find out that they're actually really sweet and, yeah, and, and exactly. quite, and quite nice. And do you think that the majority of some of the, um, misdirected, anger and or fears is just really because we don't have an opportunity to interact with people that we are maybe taught to not love or appreciate. Cause it seems like whenever yeah, I come, sure. whenever I like, I have a friend that <clears throat> is trans and in high school. Um, well now she, you know, I, when I see her, um, mm -hmm. because I knew her before she was, um, mm -hmm. her, I, you know, there was like just, it was just a really interesting experience because I didn't sure. know what to say or do. And I was relating to her as him from when I knew him in school. And right. I was really open with, I was really like, I have no problems with that. I think it's, everyone should have the opportunity to just be themselves and do whatever they want to do. It doesn't harm yeah. anyone. I don't think it harms yeah. anybody for us to just be who we are. I, I don't see how that's inflicting harm on anyone, but it, mm -hmm. it just helped. But then when I saw she's just so sweet and so nice, you know, so how could I be, <laughs> how could I be, <laughs> how could I be right. angry? Like why would, so that just makes it easier for me now to just understand that, well, they're probably that person that, that, that everyone's talking about is probably just as sweet and just as nice and just as <laughs> like me just going through life and trying to figure it out. And so I, mm -hmm. I, um, do you have any insights on that? Yeah, I think that the way I describe it to folks is that it's, there's a recalibration process that we go through when we open ourselves up to engaging in an experience that is foreign to us. Yeah. So, for example, I think International travel is a is an excellent way to expand one's heart and mind because you get out there and you see that wherever you go in the world, you have something in common 
with the people that you encounter. And it breaks down walls and opens you up to new experiences. And, um, and, and like that, when you, if you never knew a gay person or a trans person, and so then you have these ideas in your, in your mind uh, as to what that means. Um, and those, a lot of that is probably shaped by the culture that you've been living in, the societal influences that surround you, um, all these different things that the information you're taking in through media and so forth. And then you, you meet that person or you go to that place and you engage with them. And if you can do that with an openness and, 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 and actually drop any, let the animosity or the, the, um, fear based, uh, unfamiliarity, you know, it's, it's an unfamiliarity, like let that start to drop away and, and open up the experience and, and it will recalibrate the, the way that you are seeing yeah. the world. Yeah. That's and that's, cool. I think that like recognizing that, that recalibration process is something that's there for us all the time to be um, open to. It just, that's where enlightenment comes. That, that's, you know, at least partly it's like, yeah, letting your view shift and um and that's i think just been such a valuable aspect of uh, of my life i know that you know years ago i remember my first job um before i went back for my master's i short short term had this job up near chicago and this woman that I worked with was hired about the same time. She was from Beirut. And I had never met anyone from the, the Middle East, and um, let alone Beirut. And growing up, you may remember this, but Beirut was a scary place. Um, yeah. It was in the news a lot. There was yeah. a lot of uh, conflict there. And, um, and so I had an impression of uh, people from that place. And then I met her. And she was one of the nicest, kindest, most loving people I had ever met. And she treated me like so well. And and I just, and she was a little older than me and she had her PhD already. And I, I was just like, wow, you're from Beirut? Like, like people live there? Like, people, you know, and she's <laughs> yeah. sharing with me her culture. And I, yeah. oh my God, it's so amazing. And that experience is that was an, a, a page, like a, a door opener for me. Like that yeah, really yeah. set me on a different course. And I became curious. And I think curiosity is such an invi- a valuable thing, you know, yeah. to be curious, to be open, to like, just let, yeah, let live and let live, but actually mean that, you know, yeah. uh, it's, a, it's, it's, it's really, really useful to have, um, to have the opportunity and just take the opportunity. And you mentioned that, like, may not, the, the opportunity is there. We just have to go out yeah. and, and open up and, like, let these things in. And uh, it's going to be so helpful. Man, I hear you, Corey. <laughs> <laughs> I know, like, when I came out, I was at <laughs> Purdue, and I had just finished my my bachelor's and I was doing my master's and a lot of my friends were still there 
or we're coming in for the weekends and stuff. And, uh, and I came out and I was like, Oh my God, what are they going to think of me? And I, it was such an amazing thing because some of my friends were the most, like, you know, the most guy guys you can imagine. And we're at Purdue and Purdue's just a very like Midwestern, you know, good old boy school. And at that time, and, um, and they were all just like, well, it's, it's you, Corey. It's fine. It's what you know, and, and and they, a lot of them, like they got curious. They they learned so much, and then yeah. they were open yeah. to other people, and yeah. they you know became advocates and it, allies. And that's really cool. Just really cool. Yeah, yeah. Because they have the bones of knowing you from before. They have the core yeah. of kind of knowing who you already are. So the trust is there. The respect is there. So you're right. That's that's a cool, uh, that's a great transition. It's it's interesting. I was speaking, I, I know, Corey, I've, I've kept you here for a long time and I, I, oh. hope, I hope it's okay. I, one, no, no, it's good. Once I start talking, I like, I feel like we could just keep going and going here. Um, yeah. so I, I'll try to wrap it up here quickly. I promise. Okay. But, um, uh, I was speaking with a friend of mine today and she, she, uh, Oh man, I, I totally lost my train of thought. I'm gonna have to try. Oh, <laughs> we talked about a bunch Sorry. of things, and I'm like, okay, what were we talking about that was important to what you were saying? <laughs> now I'm like, <laughs> I'm just gonna have to let that one go. I apologize. Oh, I apologize. Well, I was staying really focused there. I promise. I was, I was right. I was right with you. Oh my I god. It. No worries. Um, well, I really appreciate. Oh, sorry. It came to me. So we were talking about yeah. like, we, you know, we want to write a book. She's like, I want to write my book about my, about my story. <laughs> and I said, uh -huh. I know I want to, I want to tell my story too. And then she said, I just don't know how much I want my kids to know about me though. And I said, <laughs> I was like, I know that's the really hard thing. Like how open to actually be, you know, like where, and it's like, there's certain things like I, I feel like, okay, I, I think I could talk about that. I think I could be honest about that. And then I start second guessing myself like, well, what about this? And what if my kids hear me say that? And then they actually know that I actually was a human like them. And, you know, I'm not like <laughs> the, 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 uh, you know, parent that never did anything wrong. And, um, and I know there's so much value to just being open and honest, but I have to admit, I'm still like, you know, traversing that in terms of, of, of all that mm. in the public and on, on a public discussion like this. And, but as you were speaking, it kind of made me think how amazing that you had that nervousness about being honest and how it just, mm. just dissolved quickly once you were very just matter of fact about it and or open with your friends. Mm -hmm. So that's really cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're yeah. probably all traversing that to some degree or another. Like how, how honest should we be? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> well, honest without hurting one another. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good point. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Good point. Man, well, I really am thankful for having a chance to talk to you, Corey. And I, I heard so many great things about you. So I was really looking forward to this this opportunity. And I, 
appreciate well, you, just you taking so much time with the to here and and uh i'm really excited for everyone to get a chance to hear this conversation because i feel really motivated and <laughs> inspired by um everything you said today so i'm really really thankful well thank you yeah i really appreciate it nice to e-meet you <laughs> e-meet that's right <laughs> to to uh pod me <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well hopefully it turns into a real person situation next time i might yeah my wife's family live all the way in east tennessee which is actually quite a long way away from west tennessee so mm. I can't, I can't yeah. say next time I'm in True. Tennessee, I will be close to Nashville, but <laughs> I want to come to Nashville someday. It looks someday. like such a cool city. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Let me know. We'll, we'll, I'll go out show you around. It's that, fun. That'd be great, man. Well, thank you so much again. And You're hopefully welcome. we can, uh, I'll be able to continue this conversation with you in the future. Sounds good. Thanks, yep. Corey. Have a good day. All right. You too. Yep. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for hanging in here all the way to the end of the podcast. Congratulations and well done. It's like a yoga practice in and of itself. Personally, when I get in on a podcast, like I just go and then if it's a really good one, I will walk the dog a little longer with my headphones on or I'll pull back, I'll pull into my driveway and won't, you know, I'll turn the car off and I'll just keep sitting in there and <laughs> Tamara will be like, where are you? And I'm, I'm still out here in the car listening to this, into this podcast. I, it's so good. I, I got to finish it. So you're here. So you did it. Thank you. We appreciate it. We love it. The follow through is just amazing. And so again, remember you can check out Corey on his website, yogashalanashville.com. And you can also find him on his social media at yogashalanashville. Uh, remember that if you want to practice with us via the live stream, it, we have a two week free introductory special and you can check it out. And there's a link below as well in the show notes. All right. I think that's about it. Remember, if you have any comments or questions, uh, you can send me an email at info at nativeyogacenter.com. I really love feedback. And on that note, let's um, join again soon, sometime soon. Native Yoga Toddcast is produced by myself. The theme music is dreamed up by Bryce Allen. If you like this show, let me know. If there's room for improvement, I want to hear that too. We are curious to know what you think and what you want more of, what I can improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, please send us your thoughts to info at Native Yoga Center. You can find us at nativeyogacenter.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends, rate it and review and join us next time.